The reading is from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may have noticed that our readings are uh, somewhat different this week than they usually are. Usually we hear three readings and a psalm every Sunday. Uh, but this week, we really only heard one reading uh, in addition to the psalm and then the children's reading. And no, I didn't forget the other two readings as much as uh, you might think that I had forgotten. Rather, for the, at least the next few months, we're going to be experimenting with a little different format uh, during our worship service, uh, a little different uh, way of doing our encounters with God's word in Scripture. So rather than following the Revised Common Lectionary, as we usually do, where every week you have a reading from the Old Testament and the Psalms and the New Testament and the Gospels, we're going to instead try following something called the Narrative Lectionary. 
And each week, we'll have just one main preaching text along with another uh, brief supporting text, sometimes just a verse or two. And really, this will start in September, when this will get underway. And our our main reading starting in September will begin uh, moving through the overall story of the Bible, starting with Genesis 1 on September 10th, and going up through the Old Testament until Christmas time, and then following uh, Jesus through the Gospels until around Easter. Uh, And then the rest of the New Testament uh, will be focused on between Easter and Pentecost. And each year, it follows this cycle. And so our hope is that this new format will allow us to focus in more on one main reading each week, as well as better immerse us in the overall story of the Bible, from creation to Christ to the church to the consummation of all things at the end. And of course, like any good experiment, we may find that it's not working out and go back. And that's all right. After a few months, we may switch back. But either way, I would love to hear your feedback, especially as we get more into it come September and uh, get some of the the kinks worked out uh, with our format. Uh, But I would love to hear your feedback about that. But that's enough about the future. Uh, Let's focus on today. Starting today uh, and for the next three Sundays, uh, we're going to be focusing on the sacraments. And as you can probably guess, based on our readings uh, today, we started with Holy Communion. In our reading from 1 Corinthians, we find Paul in uh, writing to the church in a city called Corinth. And due to its importance as a trade hub in the Roman Empire, Corinth attracted people from all walks of life. You could find people from diverse nations and ethnicities, diverse occupations and financial backgrounds, all working to make a living in this bustling port. And the church in Corinth was really no different. From what we can tell, the Corinthian church contained people at the very bottom of the social ladder and at the very top of the social ladder and most of the rungs in between. And while this diversity undoubtedly created some richness for them, it also tended to worsen the fractiousness which plagued the Corinthian church. From what we can tell in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, these letters of Paul to the church in Corinth, Paul's relationship to this church that he founded was rocky at best. Though Paul founded this church, it seems that his standing with them was often being challenged by various factions and leaders within the church. And because of this, it was necessary for Paul to write them often. In fact, of all the churches that Paul founded, there are none that have as many words in the Bible dedicated to them as this church in Corinth. But as frustrating and challenging as this relationship must have been for Paul, the letters that it occasioned are incredibly valuable for us today. For God continues to use the lessons in these letters to shape us and mold us into a more faithful church. Well, our reading today finds Paul criticizing the Corinthian church for their practice around the Lord's Supper or at least their attempted practice of the Lord's Supper. For he says that when they gather together, it's not really the Lord's Supper they are eating. Rather, it seems to be some other supper that they're celebrating. As best we can tell, uh, the Corinthian church must have practiced communion in connection with some community meal. And that in itself isn't a problem. It seems to have been fairly common in the early church. But what is a problem is the way that those divisions and factions of the Corinthian church found a way to dominate this sacrament 
which had been passed down to the church from Jesus himself. When the Corinthians gathered for this meal of communion and the larger meal of the community, everyone brought their own food and ate whenever they arrived. And in a church which contains both members who are extremely wealthy and who are extremely poor, the results of the wealth, this resulted in the wealthy coming early and eating to excess and becoming drunk and the poor arriving later having nothing or little to eat and being shamed at their lack, at their poverty. Rather than celebrating this sacrament of unity together, the Corinthians merely reinforce their divisions, not receiving the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of sins, but rather receiving it in a spirit of judgment, creating divisions among themselves, making distinctions between members. Paul's response to this abuse of the Lord's Supper is to go back to basics, to walk them through Jesus' command and institution of this sacrament. And in fact, these words, the words that start with, in the night in which he was betrayed, are what we now simply call the words of institution. And we use these words along with the accounts from Matthew, Mark, and Luke every time we celebrate communion as a way of being kept in line with the ancient practice given to us by Jesus himself and kept by the church across the generations. These words, these promises of Christ are so familiar that maybe it seems like there's no need to really talk about them at all. I I mean, even when I'm reading a passage like this that is so familiar to me, I find that my eyes kind of skip the parts as I already know them, and I recite them from heart, or at least close to heart, and maybe I'm messing them up a little bit, but I tend not to actually read them. They're so familiar. But if we do that, we miss a lot of what's actually going on here. We miss a lot of what Paul is saying here. For he's not just delivering to the Corinthians the promises of Christ, he's also solemnly warning them of the dangers of misusing this sacrament. Listen to these warnings again, because they're not often repeated in our worship services. Paul writes, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And... All who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. And then he uh, caps it off with this. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have even died. This is serious business. This communion is not simply a nice ritual of unity. It's not just an opportunity to eat and drink in church. Rather, it's a holy sacrament something on which our very lives depend. And it deserves to be honored above every other meal, even above church potlucks. And probably I don't really need to go into why this sacrament is so important, but I'm going to anyway. First off, Holy Communion is a proclamation of Jesus' death. This is what Paul says, in this way you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this alone is reason enough to treat it with respect, with reverence. For even if this were all that were happening in the Lord's Supper, even if the only event going on was remembering and proclaiming uh, Jesus's giving of his very body and life in the night he was betrayed by his disciples, even then this remembrance would be more than enough reason to honor the supper. 
For simply by remembering his sacrifice, by giving thanks for the salvation Jesus has won, we give honor to God. We please God with true worship that's instituted, handed down by Jesus himself. And even if there was nothing more to say regarding the sacrament and its benefits, and there is a lot more to say, this on its own would be reason enough to set aside one day a week to gather together, to offer to God the sacrifice of praise, pleasing and acceptable to him. I mean, after receiving life and salvation at great cost to Jesus, the very least we can do is give thanks for this most precious of gifts that we have received. But not only is the Lord's Supper a proclamation of Jesus' death, it is always also a receiving of Jesus' death. For not only do we gather at communion to remember and to give thanks, but also to receive something, something that we cannot receive any other way. For Jesus says it himself, this is my body, this is my blood. Jesus himself promises his real presence in, with, and under the bread and the wine of communion. And while Jesus is indeed present in all times and in all places, he is present here in a very specific way for you. Jesus here promises to be present in a way that's not against you or indifferent to you, but for you. Here, Jesus makes himself available for your good and not for your ill, for the forgiveness of your sins and not for your condemnation. Whenever you come to the Lord's Supper, therefore, you are receiving Jesus Christ himself with his body and blood, and you're receiving him by mouth and taking him deep into your belly until he is digested and distributed and incorporated into your very body. And whenever you come to the Lord's Supper, you are receiving Jesus Christ himself with his word of promise to you. And you are receiving him by ear and taking him deep into your conscience where he reigns supreme with the forgiveness of sins, setting you free in the midst of corruption. Here in the Lord's Supper, you encounter that which is most holy, God in the flesh, given for you. And if you take that seriously, it is a humbling thing. It would be understandable if you hesitated at the sheer magnitude of what is happening for you. If you paused to be sure you were receiving this inexpressible gift in a manner worthy of its importance. Martin Luther addresses this question of worthiness in the small catechism uh, very simply. He, he writes this, A person who has faith in these words, given for you and shed for you for the forgiveness of sin, this person is really worthy and well prepared. In other words, the only worthiness for sinners like you and me is faith. The only way to rightly receive the promise of the presence of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is to believe and to trust in that promise. Or to use Paul's language from our reading today, it is to discern the body. This means first to discern your own body, which uh, to see how you are already deep in the power of sin from which you cannot escape. And second, to discern in the bread and wine Christ's body, 
which sets free from sin and death, bringing life and forgiveness and salvation. And third, to discern the body of believers, including yourself, as the body of Christ, not because of our sinlessness, but but precisely because of God's forgiveness given to us in Christ. This trust in God's word is what makes the difference between receiving forgiveness and receiving judgment, as Paul puts it. And it seems so simple a thing, yet I must confess, brothers and sisters, that I am troubled by this question of worthiness. I'm troubled not merely by the question of my own worthiness, for though daily I act in ways that would disqualify me from the presence of Christ, were it not for God's incessant grace, Rather, I'm troubled by this simple question, and I include myself in this question. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe Christ's promise of presence here this morning? Do we really believe that Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, who died and rose again, is here in this very meal, giving forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation Because if we really believe that, how could we ever let anything stop us from coming to get it? How could we ever choose something else? How could we ever fail to, with fear and great joy, draw near to our living Savior who has drawn so near to us with his body and blood? I mean, what other explanation can there be For how often we despise this gift, except that we have fallen into the deep sin of unbelief, unfaith, untrust in God's promise. Oh, brothers and sisters, is not this the pinnacle and the root of all sin? That we find ourselves cold and indifferent toward our dear Savior? And all that he has done by his bitter suffering, redeeming us from sins, death, and the devil, making us righteous, alive, and blessed. Is not this the deepest offense? That when God makes the promise of salvation to us again and again, we make God out to be a liar and don't really trust this promise at all. Who will rescue us from this body of death? If you find yourself in this state of unfaith, if you find yourself cold and indifferent towards salvation and the promises of God, if you find yourself despising God's promise to you and avoiding the place God has promised to be, well, then there's really only one thing to be done. And no amount of effort or work of yours will help, for it is beyond your power to create even the smallest amount of faith. Rather, come to the table and receive the presence of Christ for you. Come to the table and receive this gracious and effective sacrament. For this gift is a fire that can kindle even the coldest heart. This promise is a salve which can soften the most unyielding stone. Bring your worst sin, for there is forgiveness here. 
bring your unfaith, for here is God's unwavering promise. Because in the end, though our faith is shallow and our sin is deep, the grace and love of Christ is deeper still. And at this table and in this meal, we find love and grace and forgiveness abounding even in a morsel of bread and in a sip of wine, far more than we could ever hope to deserve or receive on the basis of our merit or worthiness. Rather, here is grace and love, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation given for you in your sin. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.